Hello and welcome to Narrative, a journey into the ancient art of storytelling. A place to gather by the fire and share the stories of our ancestors. A place to gather and tell our own tales. Here we will explore legends, fairy tales, myths, and folklore. We'll have conversations around archetypes, history, theology, and the ancient mysteries, as well as having discussions on how it all pertains to our lives. Before carvings or hieroglyphs or written word, our ancestors kept their stories alive through oral tradition. In honoring them, I too want to continue this path. Thank you for joining me. I am your host, Mary Rogers. In today's episode, I want to tell the story of Pandora and her infamous box of horrors. But as I was preparing for today's episode, I decided I really needed to begin with Pandora's origin, which coincidentally links to the origin of humanity. So far, I believe I've retold the Babylonian, Akkadian, Christian, and Norse creation stories. Though the Norse creation story was only that of Middle Earth, not of humanity. So I'm very excited to retell the Greek mythological story of creation of man and woman. The ancient Greeks believed that in the beginning, the world was in a state of nothingness, which they called chaos. And if you recall from episode 5, The Darkest Night, chaos and mist gave birth to Nyx and her sisters, Gaia and Eros. Hesiod mentions that Gaia came into existence in order to home the gods, which is similar to the Sumerian creation myth, which describes how Earth, or Eden, was created as the dwelling place for the gods. I think this is one of the things that fascinates me so much about mythological studies and historical records. Because through time and space and cultures all across the globe, almost all stories intertwine and intersect and can often be very similar in their context. Gaia, or Mother Earth, gave birth to Uranus, the sky, and to another, the ocean. But it's with her son Uranus that Gaia had 12 children, primordial beings known as the Titans. She also gave birth to monsters like Cyclops and the Hundred-Handed Ones. And Uranus, disgusted by these monsters, threw them into Taurus, or the underworld. Gaia was furious, and she wanted revenge. Needing to exact a plan, she called upon her youngest son, Kronos, who would later become father to Zeus. And at the urging of Gaia, Kronos castrated his father and threw him into the ocean. And from the blood of his genitals came the goddess of love and beauty, Aphrodite. Kronos married his sister, Rhea, and together they had six children, who would later be called the gods. But before their first child was born, Kronos had been given a prophecy that said one day one of his children would cut him into pieces and overthrow him. So to avoid this from happening, or at least in an attempt to, Kronos swallowed each of his children the moment they were born. Now, obviously, as the mother who carried these children within her womb, this didn't make Rhea very happy. So when she gave birth to Zeus, instead of handing him over to Kronos, she gave Kronos a rock to eat instead of the baby. Zeus was raised by Almathea. Now, depending on the version of the story, Almathea was either a nymph or a goat, and she raised Zeus in a mountainous cave in Crete. And when he was old enough, Zeus, with the help of Matisse, tricked Kronos into drinking a mixture of wine and mustard. And just for chronology, Matisse later had a child with Zeus, the goddess Athena. But because of this mixture that Zeus had Kronos drink, Kronos ended up vomiting up the rest of the gods, or his children, who, being immortal, had been growing up completely undigested in his stomach. Later, as the story goes, Zeus and the gods, or his siblings, went to war with the Titans. 
So this was the gods versus their elders. And it was a 10-year battle, really between Zeus and his father Kronos over the cosmos. Ironically, Zeus actually won the war with the help of the hundred-handed ones and the Cyclops, the ones Uranus had thrown into the underworld. And after winning this war, Zeus cut Kronos into pieces and threw him into the underworld and became the leader of the gods of Mount Olympus. Poseidon took over the oceans, Hades took over the underworld, and Zeus married his sister Hera and crowned her queen of the Olymp queen of Olympus. Prometheus and Epimetheus were brothers, and they were titans who didn't join in the war against the gods, so their lives were spared. And it was sometime during or after this war, let's see, it's written that after becoming the lord of the gods on Mount Olympus, the god Zeus dreamed of creating people and animals upon the earth. So he summons these two titans that he spared, Prometheus and Epimetheus, the brothers, and he gives them this task to create humans and animals on earth. And to do this, Zeus donates some necessary materials because he wants every living thing to have an ability to save or protect themselves. And the two brothers get to work. But there's a problem because Epimetheus gets way too excited and quickly and foolishly makes a bunch of animals and birds. And before he even realizes it, he's used all of the materials that Zeus gave him. So by the time they get around to making humans, there's nothing left. And while Epimetheus was busy creating his animals and his birds, Prometheus was very busy building a very beautiful animal with the physical constitution of the gods, and he called them man. Now, in this instance, the use of the word man or mankind was very literal, as he was building and shaping men. Prometheus shaped a man out of the mud, and Athena breathed life into his clay figure. Prometheus lifted their heads and gave them the ability to see the sky. And the goddess Athena gave them intelligence and the ability to problem solve. And Hermes gave them justice and consciousness. But unfortunately, man was still missing the qualities that Zeus had especially instructed due to Epimetheus's impulsiveness. So Prometheus, looking at his man, this beautiful creature who is completely vulnerable, decides then to make man stand upright just as the gods did and hope that they would have a way or means to defend themselves. But still looking at his creations, naked and shivering, he thought if man were at least given fire, they could stay warm. They can make things with the help of the fire and they could at least cook to survive. But when Zeus heard Prometheus's thoughts, he said that not even a single spark could be given to man from heaven. For if man were to receive fire, he would be too strong and would become as wise and as prudent as the gods. So Zeus refused and commanded that man remain ignorant. If the fire wouldn't be given freely to man, Prometheus decided he would have to steal it. And he did just that one day while Zeus was out. Prometheus stole fire from the temple of Mount Olympus, and he brought this fire to the humans and taught them how to use it so that they could rise above the animals. In his anger, Zeus took the fire away from man, but Prometheus lit a torch from the sun and presented it to man once again, which infuriated Zeus even more, and he decided that in order to punish Prometheus, he would really have to find a way to punish man. So Zeus comes up with a plan. He has... Hephaestus created a mortal of stunning beauty, and they call her woman. When she was presented to Zeus, the goddess Athena wrapped her in a dazzling golden garment. Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty and love, gave her a beautiful and stunning appearance. The gods gave woman many gifts of wealth and greatness and cunning and curiosity. And finally, Hermes gave her a deceptive heart and a lying tongue, and he named her Pandora, which means all gifted or all gifts. 
Pandora was created as a seductress and constructed in such a way as to make anyone fall in love with her. Zeus sent Pandora down to Earth, and he gave her as a present to Prometheus' brother, Epimetheus. And Zeus told Epimetheus that he should marry her. Now, Prometheus had warned his brother, Epimetheus, not to accept any gifts from Zeus because he knew Zeus was angry. But when Pandora showed up, her beauty was so great that despite his brother's warnings, Epimetheus allowed her to stay. Zeus had also give it, gifted Pandora a little box with a very big lock on it. In the earliest versions of the story, rather than a box, it's said to be sealed pottery or a sealed pottery vase. And Zeus instructed them to never open this box or this vase, and he gave the key to Epimetheus. But Pandora was very curious indeed. She begged Epimetheus to let her open it, but he always said no. And then one day he fell asleep, and depending on the version, she either stole the key or broke the seal and opened the box or opened the vase, depending on the story variation. And out of that box flew every kind of trouble that people had ever known sickness and death and grief and shame and worry and all crimes ever committed hate and envy out flew all manner of evil sorrows plagues and misfortunes and as the bad things began to fly away pandora tried to catch them she tried to push them back in the box she tried to close the lid, but it was too late. Everything bad and everything evil had been unleashed into the world. And Pandora, sitting there crying, sees one last thing about to fly out of the box. But it was not as ugly as the others. In fact, it was beautiful, even more beautiful than Pandora herself. And it was called hope, the greatest gift Zeus could give humanity. Because no matter where you've been or what you've been through, hope is the one thing that no one can ever take from you. It's your salvation and your grace and you will nurture her bury her and then gnaw and claw at the dirt time and time again until she has become immortal in breath and depth and soul and then you shall call her life eternal and everlasting in womb awakening Azra and Seren Bertrand talk about our cerebellum and how it houses our unconscious memories. All trauma is stored there, and they likened it to Pandora's box, and how we open it slowly over time, and with healing and love, and how our cerebellum is also where desire is born, and where our psychic abilities, deep womb wisdom, and intuition are given rise. So while it's a place where wounding and trauma resides, it's also the place where magic is born. And this is a Pandora's box in the sense that despite all the darkness and ick that may fly out and about, we still carry the potent antidote of hope. Carl Jung said, Pandora, the soul, creates the saving jewel in the unconsciousness. And that jewel is hope. From a Jungian perspective, Pandora's box is considered the unconscious mind, or our shadow selves, which is ultimately the engine driving our thoughts, our emotions, or behaviors. Or as Carl Jung put it, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. For some of us, I also think of Pandora's box as being the container of our lives. When we're born, we're pure, we're innocent. And as we grow older and begin to experience or feel ancestral trauma or abuse of our own, or the neglect or shame that can come from addiction within a family, whatever it may be. When we start to carry the feelings of unlovable or unworthy, shame is often inevitably born. And we do what we can to hide that shame, which can grow from a box of secrets 
into an entire closet of skeletons. And if we pull just one thread or try to open this closet door, all hell can be unleashed. This is where the dark goddess guides us as we embark on our dark night of the soul. And throughout the process, the one thing that can pull us through or keep us going is this gift of hope. Hope can guide us. It can become a torch in the darkness. Hope can lead to belief, which can transform our reality. Without hope, we're lost. We start as these innocent children, open and receptive to the world around us. And then we spend our adult lives trying our best to return to that state of innocence, deconditioning, and undoing our domestication. And hurt people hurt people whether they mean to or not. I remember a saying my mama had, and she always had the best sayings. Do your best to always be kind and remember that people love the best way they know how. Meaning that while some people aren't very good at it, they're likely showing up in the ways they were taught or the way they saw love modeled. We repeat patterns until we pull our unconscious to the surface, making it conscious. And we begin to heal ourselves, which means we also begin to heal the world. I've thought about all the times as a child, I was told to get my head out of the clouds. I had an avid imagination and I spent many years in a state of daydreaming. I realize now that was really my mind protecting me and in so many ways, but it also means that I wasn't always present, which means I couldn't store current memories in my conscious mind. And then the ones that were stored as a protective mechanism, my mind has allowed me to forget. So it's taken me many years to try and remember and piece together the times of my childhood that literally seemed to just disappear into this void. Looking back, I've also learned that in some instances, I actually changed what was happening completely in my mind. Imagine some of your most vivid and beautiful memories being ones that your mind created or made up as a way to avoid the actual hell you were living. And imagine the devastation upon learning that those memories aren't real. Psychology calls this escapism, which the Oxford Dictionary defines as the tendency to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities especially by seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. In severe cases, people can actually experience a split where their fantasy gets played out in extremes. And this is often where disassociative identity disorder or multiple personalities comes into play. And while I'm so grateful I never experienced any of that, I can understand how it could happen. And again, all of this is just from our Pandora's box that's created of our lived experience in our mind, of our trauma, our abuse, our wounding. But always remember that the last thing in that box, again, it comes back to hope. This actually makes me think of a story that um, Psalm Isadora told, and it was one that a Sufi teacher from Istanbul, Istanbul had told her. Our souls are the kings and queens meant to rule our lives. Our hearts, or our ability to feel, is our throne. Our mind is meant to guard the gate of our kingdom. Osho said that our minds can be a beautiful servant or a dangerous master. For many of us, we've gone through something, or maybe a lot of somethings, where we've experienced hurt or wounding or trauma. And in this case, our minds lock the door to our hearts to protect it. And when this happens, our souls go into a state of deep slumber. So how do we get the guard to open the gate? Or how do we open Pandora's box and dismantle this fortress we've built around our hearts? We continue to show up. We continue to do the work. We continue to do whatever is necessary to heal. We have to dance with our shadow and embrace our inner child. There is no avoidance as the only way out is through. 
And in this process, we learn to play. We learn to embrace and embody pleasure. We learn to self-soothe. We learn about responsibility, forgiveness, emotional maturity. We dance and we listen or create music and art in our soul. We begin to trust ourselves and our intuition, which in turn helps us to learn to trust other people once more. We can birth ourselves back into a primordial wholeness by entering the vibration of the feminine dimension. It's a realm of feelings, intimacy, intuition, receptivity held in the primal cave of the heart. It's our human birthright born of the very essence of existence, which is love. It's a deep feeling, a space you melt into, an infinite realm of magical possibilities. Feelings become tangible, shadows, wisps, whispers, caresses, opening out into the undulating vistas of sensual perception. Feelings embrace us, submerge us, consume with us, commune with us, envelop us, dissolve us, and take us beyond time itself. A palpable essence, it heals us, touches us, sings to us. It's a place of non-achievement, of giving in, letting go, surrendering, or crying tender tears for all those places that still feel hurt, unworthy, and unloved. Feminine consciousness is fluid. It's oceanic. It's opening us into the ecstatic experience of life as a mystical dream time of love and possibilities. And once we've touched this mystery, it will whisper, embrace, and entwine us within our most contracted places, gently opening them out into the mysterious magic of existence. And when we set our intention and began to unravel and unfold towards love and true healing, our great cosmic mother Gaia will conspire for us, with us, and through us. As Rumi said, the wound is the place where the light enters. And we lose that hope, which is desire, which is the energy that propels us forward. When we give up on hope and give in to despair, depression and hopelessness become the dangerous beasts that devour our soul. And for some, in the end, it's that darkness that ultimately claims their lives. And as someone who has been consumed in this darkness more times than I would ever care to admit, and as someone who has, in the early times of my life, moved towards self-harm, here is what I know. Protect your light, protect your hope, protect your positivity, protect your faith, and treat this thing called hope, even if it seems smaller than a mustard seed, as the most precious gem that it is. Nurture it. Allow yourself to dream and desire. And when life feels overwhelmingly dark, water it, feed it, and give it to the light. They say the only way out is through, and hope is the propeller to get you there, even if it's only one small step at a time. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Narrative. If you were moved by today's episode and are looking forward to future broadcasts, Be sure to hit subscribe and as always, likes and shares are always appreciated and donations are always welcome. I had a great time with you today and I can't wait to be with you again next week. Yours truly, XOXO, Mary Rogers.